0: Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson.
1: You're listening to the Diverse Tech Founders podcast, the show that brings you the one thing older than capital, people just like you and me. And I'm your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Thank you for listening. So I guess the first question for you both, and I hope that you'll go a little more in depth instead of just giving the city, um, uh, but leave that to you, sort of for both of you, where did you grow up?
2: Um, well, I am from Southeast, Southeast London. Um, I grew up in a city, well, a town called Deptford um, for most of, well, most of my childhood. And then I moved to like Kent. Well, I like to call it East still, but <laughs> <Nice. laughs> people dispute and say it's Kent. So I would just say Southeast slash Kent, and I've literally been here since then. Uh, so for the past sixteen years or so, I would say I've lived on this side of the of London and went to school here, did my sixth form here, and university wasn't too far away either. So yeah,
1: very nice, very nice. And for you, Elizabeth.
0: So I I grew up in West London, I was born and raised in West London. And you notice that we're talking about like, different geographical locations of London, it's because London feels like its own country sometimes. And the different parts of London are very, very different. So like, where Judith grew up in Southeast London is very multicultural, that's probably where the majority of black people are. And in West London, that's probably where the least black people are, like, it's probably like, generally the richest, but also the most, um, in terms of income inequality, probably the most heightened part of London. So yeah, I grew up in West London, and then my family moved to Essex, which is a county just outside of London, which is really, really, really white, um, but also really, really, really racist. So that was an adjustment. And then since then, I went to university outside of London in Birmingham, which is in the Midlands, and then kind of lived all over London, so like North, South, North London, Southeast London, East London, and now I'm back in West
1: London, where I belong. <laughs> That's good. Very nice. Okay. So both of you maybe didn't grow up right next to each other, but sort of in similar areas, which we'll get to back in a minute. Uh, but sort of the next question reminds me of sort of the the first time that I was looking at you all online in your Instagram and it's very clear that you all have a focus and a plan and a way that you want to deliberately sort of tell your story so kind of walk us through the origin of your tech background where did it come from why would because tech is oftentimes like intimidating to folks how were you all able to kind of get in there and and get going and, and have the momentum that you have already
0: I think the crucial thing with eFitter is we were trying to offer a solution and it seemed like technology was the best way to offer that solution so um we are very much a tech company but although we are a tech company we are centered around solving fashion-based problems and technology which is the best way to do so so um in my particular case I don't have a strict tech background in that I don't have a background in coding or anything like that but I worked in a tech company um, for a few years. So it was software as a service. And I think working in that environment, you, um, you learn the basics of coding just because it kind of helps with a growing startup where everyone's kind of doing a bit of everything. But also you learn a lot about how technology can provide a solution to wider problems as opposed to being the vehicle in and of itself. So um, what I mean by that is a lot of companies say that they are X tech so, they are fashion tech or they are ed tech or healthcare tech. But we're, we're moving into a world where technology just permeates every industry. So, we probably won't need to describe ourselves as a fashion tech company in the next 10 years' time. We'll just be I don't know, a fashion solutions company. Love that.
1: Love that.
2: Sorry, I just wanted to touch off on what um, Lady said actually, because meaning that we don't both, both of us don't come from a purely tech background. And I think that's really important to know. I feel like Like you said, the tech industry is not the most welcoming in terms of, oh, I run a tech company. Okay, um, what experience do you have? And and can you code? And this is not necessarily that. That's not the only, um, I think, foundation of the company. I think it's also the idea of what Blakey said, solving a problem. And technology is the only way that we can solve this problem. This problem has been in fashion since the beginning of e commerce. And it's something that if Technology produced a problem. Technology needs to be used to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's kind of like our standpoint. And um, for me, tech was purely rec- like recreational. I studied law at university, okay. and um, during my years at uni, I found that lots of people wanted like graphic design and web design, and I just started gearing towards that and solving that kind of mini problem within my circle, and started learning about tech in like from purely my interest. Web design, web development, and then from there, it just kind of my love for tech grew. Even to a point where I considered studying computer science for a master's, like it was that that serious. Yeah. So from law. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's really important to note that it doesn't really matter the foundation in terms of like your coding background or you know where you've come from in terms of um, education, but you just need to really be solving a problem, and I think that's what we're doing.
1: That's a solid background. An intro. I mean, you've wet our appetite. Now, give us the full course meal. What is eFitter, and where did this idea come from?
2: Um, so, eFitter is solving the sizing problem that women face. We found in the UK, sixty-one percent of women face as they shop online. Um, and through this solution, we are hoping to approach brands, sustainable brands, and also solve their problem of high returns rate and waste in the fashion industry it is a huge huge problem a lot of people don't realize that when you buy clothes online you order it it's not the right size you return it back well i'm not give a number but percentage of the time they get sent to landfills and they're burnt and this is not good for the environment so we are trying to solve the problem of okay i order online i should know that the size i've ordered should fit me and that's it there should be no trip down to the post office there should be no trip down to your local store to see the queries, pick it up. That's not, that's what we're trying to cut out. There's a lot um, that happens from the process of a customer ordering to the process of it coming to their front door. There's a lot that goes in between. And, and I feel like that is one of the solutions that we, or the foundation, the core solution of Ether. Um And the idea from Ether came from a personal problem. Um, when I started uni, I think it was in 2014, finance came I don't know what it's called in um, America but we get like free money basic they was not free free <laughs> it's not free money I have to pay it back but the funny stage, money student age, loans free right. very free <laughs> um and I found ASOS I think ASOS then I don't know if it was new then but it was definitely new for me I think that was the reign of ASOS misguided boohoo and, and I started this whole bad habit of online shopping I remember the first few items i got were jeans and i bought them from forever 21 asos and h&m i think and all in the same size and they all fit different every single one fit different and i was like this is weird and i'm a very i wouldn't say i think back then i was very lazy so i just i was like i'm not going to return it i can't be bothered but i had two pairs of jeans that never fit me ever and i kept it but in the event that i did return it i'll be probably adding to the problem of um landfill so I think in that in that problem, over time and my love for tech, I started researching into artificial intelligence, machine learning, and problems that they could solve in fashion. And yeah, that kind of birthed the idea of eFooter. And I think me and Blakey had a conversation when um, we were figuring out our podcast and how we were going to market the product without the product. And she was like, yeah, this is it. So we sat down and we really pushed like what are we selling to these companies what are we offering consumers and how can we be the go-to solution for my So
1: yeah love that that's really good and now i'm curious to know i mean you clearly defined the problem sort of the need now what is that technical solution that you're now providing to the marketplace like when you're when you're having these interventions and producing that positive output sort of what does that look like like how how do you measure that how are you tracking that
0: So to begin with, we envisioned a plugin. So the reason we've thought of this is, if you're shopping online, you're already on, say, the ASOS website or wherever you're shopping. So to then direct users off that web page to, say, download an app or go on a separate website is not the best user journey. So we've imagined a plugin where, as you're at the point of choosing your size, you've been given the information about which size would suit you best. From that particular retailer of that particular outfit so um, with that in mind our business is going to be heavily data driven so to begin with looking at things such as you know what are the general sizes that they use for say skirts jeans tops but also looking at your historic purchases to kind of estimate what would fit you best so yeah a plug-in to begin with and then as time goes by Hopefully we'll look at um, generating an app where as we move on to our next product, we kind of personalise the whole shopping suite as opposed to just solving that particular problem. So I guess with us, the vision for eFitter is to become the brand, the household name that solves multiple problems within the fashion industry and kind of being the go-to for these e-commerce companies.
1: That's super cool. And I can see that the vision is bigger than sort of what's in front of you right now. And oftentimes to expand and grow, you have to have conversations uh, with each other about how to capitalize your business. And I'm wondering like how you were able to capitalize your business. And if you had to go to investors, how did you prove to them that this was uh, something that your customers would use and that they could gain traction in the market? If you're enjoying the show so far, remember, you can always enjoy the latest resources on our website at d-tech.fund. That's dtech.fund. Back to the show.
0: So I think the crucial thing to remember at this point is that we're not live at this point. So we're doing all of the uh, market research and just generating traction, in terms of interaction with the brand from consumers. So um, the way that our business will be structured is we're marketing to both businesses, so fashion businesses, but also to consumers. So um, when the time comes for us to be fundraising, it's important that we have proven that we are solving that problem for the fashion retailers because that's where the money's going to come from realistically. So because, um, as Judith has mentioned, 61% of returns happen due to forfeits. And in total, in women's fashion, the returns rate is roughly 40%. So, uh, yeah, huge. <laughs> so as well as talking about the environmental impact, it's also hugely impacting these companies' bottom line. So our hope is that by pro- providing this plugin, by saying, okay, embed this onto your site, and customers will be able to generate their perfect fit, businesses will look at us and say, actually, we're, pa- we're paying for this plugin to ultimately reduce our overall costs. So that's how we're looking at generating um, revenue. So basically a SaaS model. So, you know, you've got this licensing fee for a product that will eventually do a lot more than just generate perfect
1: um, fit. That's cool. And I guess that leaves it open for you to add some more bespoke and customized uh, features uh, based on whoever your client is, which is which is very cool. Um, speaking of customization, what's, what, what's it like pitching your product, explaining it, Um, uh, reaching out to folks while you're working a demanding day job? I think I saw this on one of your lives as well as you discuss sort of that balance. But I mean, what is it like as you go and pitch the product? I understand there's a whole nother element in developing it, working on it, but what's it like actually pitching it while you're having a demanding day job? When we
2: pitch or when we do hope to speak to consumers and the people that we have like on our Instagram pages, we really want to listen. I think that's the most important thing because as companies, we tend to have an idea or startups, for example, we tend to have an idea of what we think our target persona wants and what they're looking for. But I think it's more important to listen to their actual needs because we may think, oh, they want us to solve all their sizing problems. And actually, they just want us to solve the sizing of one item. It could literally be jeans. And that may require our take on the whole aspect of sizing to pivot. And I think through that, we are finding that to balance the whole idea of, okay, we are at this stage and we're still growing and we're still figuring it out as we go. And we also work full time and we have other commitments. It's just like I think you've seen in our life. we just say it's the need for balance and it's the need for prioritizing what you need to prioritize and having a set um, timeline for your product as well. I think that's something that we did at the beginning of the year and I think we've kept to very well. Yeah, I think
0: to add to that, we've both realised that because we are doing other things outside of eFitter, it means that we have to really have a strong left to stand on when we are describing our business to other people when we're pitching it. So um, one of the first things that we did was just brainstorm and say, okay, like what is our elevator pitch? What are the problems that we're solving? And being really prescriptive about it. And then on top of that, because, um, you know, we're working during the day, we used to meet up in person, pre-COVID, like in evenings or on weekends, especially for podcast recordings, but now it tends to be remote. And after every meeting, we have action points. So it's not just a matter of, okay, yeah, we're going to discuss X, Y, and Z. It's, okay, what are we going to do next? So it means that we're driving forward progress whilst fitting it in with whatever we have to do, because we have to
1: hold each other accountable. So you all are, I don't know how to describe this. I'll, I'll kind of let you all describe it. But you knew each other before you decided to go into business together, although your relationship has probably accelerated since you've been co-founders. And what I want to kind of understand a little bit better is your co-founder story. Like, why did you bring on a co-founder? How did you decide to bring on someone Um uh, based on however you knew them at the time? Like, what were some of the things that you were thinking about? Did you have any doubts? And how has that sort of improved your experience without having to go it alone?
2: Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> we touched on this in our podcast episode, which is really funny. But for art, for me, I think it was at that time, I just knew I couldn't do it alone. And you mentioned earlier the vision is like the product or the idea is bigger than just us and that's how it felt at the time it felt like it was bigger than me bigger than just my idea and i needed people to help like i, I could not figure out one end to the other end by myself like i've never ever run a tech company and i feel like a lot of people don't realize it but you there's strength in numbers especially when it's at this stage 100 because it's hard it's not easy So, yeah, like you alluded, we knew each other from sixth form. Um, I'm not sure what they call it in the US, sixth form. Is
1: that like like the last years of
2: high school, I guess? Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, well. Yeah, Yeah, so we knew each other um, then. And yeah, we're friends, mutuals, we had mutuals. Like, we were just cool. Like, it wasn't anything, could never have thought this would happen, like, ever. Um, And kept in touch through socials. And I think it was 2019, March, I think, when I kind of drop that okay this is my the idea that I, I'm gonna start working on and this is where it sat like it was purely baby like there was there was nothing tangible at that point point. Um, and I was studying my master's at the time so it was like I didn't announce this and I just went quiet and people were following the page and I was just like oh my god like this is what I hate like I don't like announcing things prematurely but at the same time I needed to do that to push myself to actually say it out loud like I have this idea. Um, And then fast forward to finishing my master's, I was just wrapping up my dissertation and I had the idea of, okay, we can have, in order to have a presence on social media, we can have a podcast and this podcast could literally give insight into our journey or at that time it was just me. So the journey of building a business and, you know, speak to other people that are in tech and in fashion and talk to them about what is currently going on in the industry. So that was the idea. And I would always use my Instagram stories to stir up these conversations, just to figure out if people actually cared. Um, So little mini market research in my stories. And Bleggy was always responding. So prior to this, we didn't really speak. And I was like, OK, cool. So I remember just asking her, how would you feel about, you know, joining me on the podcast? And she was like, OK, let's meet um let's have a talk so we sat down we had a talk and she was like okay so where's the actual business like what's going on with the business side and i was like okay this is where it's at but uh, you know there's this to think about and this i haven't thought about this and she was like okay but i'm i'm really sold for this like i really like this vision and i think i didn't have to think twice because i knew her i knew her track record i knew that she was a person like strives for like the best of the best like she didn't take any like any prisoners nothing's a joke everything's serious. So I was just like, I knew her character. I knew who she was. And I knew she also had a background in um, a similar industry and also experience when it looked in the business. And I think that was like a, a brilliant pick for me. And it didn't really take much convincing. And I think it was there and then I was just like, yeah, let's do this. Let's do that. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of how we came to be co-founders. And my reason for that, I guess, yeah, Beggy was just, I said it before, perfect oh. <laughs> the kind of person around this business.
1: That's nice. That's cool that it worked out that way. And it, it uh, it's inspiring for folks, too, because oftentimes people think, well, oh, I either want to do it this way or I can't work with somebody else. And I'm sure you had the experience that, but it helps to have a, like a clear reason why, you know, you all are partnered. I also want to know kind of from your perspective, why did you say yes?
0: Um. So. I, well, first of all, I didn't say yes. I was kind <laughs> of like. I think I think Judith really downplayed the way I was just like, by the way, I want in. <laughs> it's all or nothing. Mm. And I think it came from the fact that the original idea for eFitter was really similar to how I'd envisioned my fashion business at the time to be. So at the time I was running a made-to-measure fashion business and I really wanted to solve that problem of perfect fit as well. However, I soon realized that I was kind of splitting between two um niches. So I was producing African print fashion, which in itself is a niche, but then also wanting to solve the problem of a perfect fit, which is kind of like bespoke or made-to-measure tailoring. So it, it, so long story short, I stopped running the business because it was too labor-intensive, for not as much of a return, just because I was trying to reach two very distinct markets at the same time. So when I saw that Judith was running this, I was thinking, oh, okay, this is something that I actually care about. This is something that I wanted to start a business in, but for whatever reason, I was unable to do so. But then when I saw that she was also doing research on what was going on in the world of fashion tech and, you know, posting her insights on Instagram, I found it really interesting because I was working, again, in a SaaS company where a lot of my clients were fashion businesses as well. So it was nice to kind of be able to provide an insight from within that space. So as soon as she announced that you know, she wants to run this podcast and she wanted me on board, I was just thinking it would be foolish of me to not ask what the business would look like. And, you know, having run a business previously solo, I knew how tough it could be. So I was just thinking, OK, if there was a way that we could align our skills and kind of work towards this common goal, then I'm absolutely down to do so. So I feel like when I kind of went into meeting with Judith, I felt like I was going to have to go and persuade her to take me on board because I knew that e was something that was very um, close to her heart and that she felt very strongly about. And we kind of speak about this in our podcast about what it's like when you've got a business that's like your baby and it's very difficult to give away part of it, especially to somebody else. So, um, you know, that was a challenge that we navigated. But for me, it was an absolute no-brainer because I know Judith personally. And the Judith that I knew from when we were 16 to 18 was very much driven. And, you know, if, if this is what she wants to do, it will get done. So I knew that I could trust working with her. But also I knew that, you know, she was equipped to do so. So why not, you know? And I think for me, the lesson was networking horizontally rather than just, you know, networking upwards because people always think if you want to network, you have to find someone who's at the level of being a mentor, but you can find people at that level who are your kids. And I think that this was a great example of that.
1: Totally. So you all built a dream team of sorts, uh, a powerhouse co-founder team uh, and have been, you know, gaining quite a bit of traction, um, what would you do if you got a million dollars right now? Like, how would you spend it? Where would those resources sort of go to expand and grow? Um Actually, I realized I said dollars. I did, it doesn't have to be dollars. It could be pounds, which would be <laughs> the more money for you in your pocket. How would you spend the million in whatever currency it comes in? Um. Okay, I think the first thing we would do is literally, because
2: right now what I don't know if we've mentioned, but we're actually bootstrapping. We're at that stage where it's it's a means to an end kind of situation. So the million would help a lot at this stage. And I think we'd definitely be more very product focused. Um, like mentioned before, we are, are data driven and data is expensive. It's expensive to uh, obtain, it's expensive to maintain, it's expensive, expensive to turn into insight and to sell to um, brands. So I think that would be um, a chunk of, where the money would go. I think marketing as well. Um, I think marketing as well would be somewhere else we would need to spend some of the money. And I can't think of anything else off my head.
0: Thank you. <laughs> no, agreed. Um, products and marketing. So I yeah. think to expand on the products point, if we had a million pounds or dollars, we would have an MVP ready in a couple of weeks, which would be perfect because um, I think that's our biggest barrier at the moment where, you know, because of the landscape, it's going to be very difficult to raise funding anyway, but also particularly difficult if you haven't proven your concept. So we just need to do something, get it out there, improve the concept to begin with. So MVP first and then um, on marketing, marketing specifically to businesses. So that could be anything from LinkedIn ads to business
1: conferences and sponsorships of um, business events and so on. So, yeah, those are the two main things. Ooh, excuse me. Very cool. Uh, you would put that money to use basically building a better product and, and, and reaching more people to tell them about it, which totally makes sense. Uh, just to switch gears a little bit, although I guess technically it's in the same sort of umbrella, um, as you were kind of developing uh, this company, or how you think about like just your daily life and the balance. Which artist is sort of most inspiring your work or showing up in what you do? Um, and, and I asked this question because oftentimes you know founders look to artists for kind of like the the guide or the vision for focus and product and 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 how to interact with other people who may have different ideas or or their own statement and not losing themselves. There's a lot of lessons to be learned from artists, and I'm wondering. Uh, for for both of you, is there a particular artist who is inspiring your work or who you sort of look to model?
0: Um, On a personal level, I'm I'm a big, big, big music lover, but also I love music history and music business. So, um, for me, my number one business inspiration in music, because that's my big thing, is Prince. And the reason being is Prince was so focused on ownership and he he was way ahead of his time in terms of music ownership it's funny because he was having that conversation before digital was even a thing when the only way you could really own music is if you went out and bought a tape or a CD or a vinyl yet he was still very pressed about owning his products fully and i think the thing that i took from that is when we're looking at fundraising the reason another reason we're not in a hurry to fundraise yet until we prove concept is a lot of very early stage businesses Are in such a hurry to to raise funding that they take funding from perhaps the wrong people or the wrong groups, give away equity, and then later live to regret it. So for us, it's about maintaining ownership where possible, but also where it comes to the fact that we need to give away ownership, being very conscious about who we who works with us, who we allow to invest in us. Do do our values align? are they going to actually help us in the long run by providing something other than just money? Do they have the necessary experience in that field? These are the questions that we need to ask. And I think I kind of got that from Prince. Um, But then I think modern day, I mean, I don't think you can talk about business without talking about Rihanna in that she has, she, if you told me 10 years ago that this is where we would be, that Rihanna is, you know, not only one of the wealthiest, um, celebrities but also one of the most influential I would have never believed and it's because she's just been so ahead of the curve from noticing that there's a massive gap in the market in terms of um, makeup shades for darker skinned women to, to catering to women of all sizes through lingerie and kind of capitalizing where Victoria's Secret's failed and eating into that market share for me that's beyond inspirational and that's the kind of thing that we want to look into where we aren't defined by just one industry. Totally.
2: agree. Yeah, I think I would say, because I'm not big on music history, I think that's definitely bloody field. Um, I would definitely say Rihanna for me. Like, she is, artistry aside, she is a huge, huge inspiration for any Black woman in business, whether you know it or not. Um, I think to come from, and I will say actually Beyonce as well. Beyonce is huge in terms of her business as well. But what Rihanna did that I think is very different is she used her artistry to create a brand for herself and her brand is bigger than she is Fenty, Fenty Beauty, everything beyond Rihanna is bigger than Rihanna and I think that says a lot Um, and it also I think it leads to like both of us we we said this in our last Q&A that that we're very well-rounded individuals and we kind of don't have this one set um, path in terms of what we're interested in and what we like to do. And we always, we always are also saying said together that it's hard to show to people that okay, we're well, running a tech company, but we're actually, you know, into music and we're into this and we're into that. Um, but Rihanna is literally the perfect example because she's into music, she's into beauty, she's into business, she's into fashion. Like there is no limit. I think that's that's purely um, what I would say inspires me the most. There are absolutely no limits and no rule rule book. Rules yeah.
1: <laughs> um for what you want to do in this life. So I would say definitely to Rihanna for me. That's a powerful take on not just approach but impact and influence. And and I love the fact that you that you brought up Rihanna and Prince because I think those are both very fitting, uh, very fitting examples uh, to bring it sort of a little closer uh, to home, so to speak. Um, London is a place where it's like gravity. It attracts a lot of talent from all over the world, Uh, particularly in Europe. I would imagine that a lot of the tech talent comes from some of the surrounding areas as well. How does being from London uh, or or both, uh, how does it help you in London's local tech startup scene? I mean, what does it look like for you all to be engaged sort of locally in the tech startup scene, especially with folks who look like you and me?
2: I think it's, I think it's great. I think we did allude to this, though. It's not as diverse as we would like it to be. Um, I think London is the most diverse in London the UK, but I don't think it's as diverse as it could be. Um, But I think it's great so far. Like, we're new in this tech startup industry. I think entrepreneur-wise, Leggy knows more people because of the scheme she's been in in the past and her business. But in running a tech startup, I think it's... It's good, like it's great. There's a sense of community in terms of everyone wants to see everyone win. And there is no idea of, oh, this person is trying to steal my idea or any nothing like that. Like it's purely a community-based thing. I think now more than ever, um, it's important that we kind of merge horizontally instead of vertically, like Deggy said earlier. Um, and instead of looking for people that are where we would want to be, kind of collaborate and just work towards our own personal visions as companies together. Like, I, we know several people working in the same fashion tech space as us. We may not have the same business model, or the same idea, but we help each other where we can. We send each other links to, to courses, to this, to startups, to accelerators, um, pre-accelerators. There is a certain sense of community that I, I think I didn't expect. I'll be very honest, I did not expect, but it's definitely there, especially as um, black women in this industry and there are a lot of schemes that are upcoming um, that are important for us in this space because we said in one of our podcast episodes the majority of tech founders that are successful are white and they are men Um, and there are several barriers to break here because we are also looking at white women that would have access to funding that we wouldn't Um, and it's much easier. So, yeah, there are a lot of ways to look at it, but I think the of community is very important and I think we do have that to an extent here. Um, but could it be better? Yeah, I, I think it could. That's I think,
0: add to that, we're really privileged to be in London um, because, like you said, that's kind of where everything is happening and it's also where you get the most diverse pool of founders and so many pre-accelerators, communities, um, even just looking at, you know, UK Black Twitter, you see so many people who are in a similar position who are starting businesses from a similar background to you. And we mention that because it is important to see people who are like you who are starting businesses because, I mean, not only do you get the inspiration factor, but the reality is the reason we struggle with funding is people are more likely to invest in people who are like them. So one of the things I really appreciate about being in London is everyone kind of knows each other. It's almost like there are maybe two degrees of separation between you and everybody else who's in that space. And now you've got communities of um, angel investors and VCs who really care about funding people who aren't your typical, you know, white male Oxbridge founders. So um, with that in mind, I just think it's, we're really lucky to be where we are when we are as well.
1: I get that. And it's important to to acknowledge that um, if... If everything got washed away, which it it kind of feels like for a lot of businesses, is happening with with COVID-19, but if you had to strip away everything from MeFitter and and tomorrow you woke up and there was only one thing you could use to sort of rebuild or reconstruct the company, what would that be? Money. (laughs) Okay, got it. And You say say money because (laughs) a lot of the things that you've built are things that, that you've designed and strategized in your head that's just about sort of implementation right now.
0: Yeah, um, I was actually having a very similar conversation a couple of days ago, where someone asked me, "What do you what do you need with EBIT? Do you need time or do you need money?" And my answer was either or, because with time we can we can build it and we can bootstrap it, and that's exactly what we're doing right now. But if we were to have an in- a cash injection, it would just speed everything up. So if it was a matter of solving a problem caused by a global crisis and we had the funding. You can, to some degree, be insulated by that, but um, I mean, that answer was very, very simplistic, obviously. But I think the crucial thing, right, that we're building right now, and the thing that um, is keeping Ether to going, is the community. I don't think we we'll had anything without the community in that, because it's both consumer-facing and business-facing. We we're reaching people, and that's what that matters. So whether it's interacting with people on our Instagram or um, having live episodes of our podcast where people, you know, type in and ask questions and just interact positively, I don't think that we can build our business without that. We've had people who, you know, see our Instagram and say, "Hey, I'd like to get involved with X, Y, and Z," or "Hey, have you considered this?" And it just shows you that community is indispensable. So even if we were to have a massive cash injection overnight, that's not going to do anything if you don't have people inside.
1: Yeah. Talk a little bit more about that community. I know your IG following is is is, is strong and there's a lot of engagement there. You put, all, put out a lot of content on IG um, and on your podcast. Which communities specifically are sort of the most helpful in growing that eFitter, e-fitter brand?
2: So I think when we sat down pre-Instagram days and pre-podcasts, we kind of had this target persona in our head. And we said, okay, this is what the standard eFitter consumer looks like to us and she wears this and she's this style she has this much of an, an income and i think that was very important in navigating how we had uh or how we portrayed our brand our brand message on socials and i mean at the beginning like any other instagram you kind of have to build from the scratch you kind of have to show that you're here to add value you're here to kind of you know give them insight into how this happened and how this is run and did you see this and it's just about building up a an educated audience, I think that's the one thing that we started to understand is that consumers of our age, and this is our target market, millennials, millennial women, are savvy. They understand a bit more about um, stores and brands and you know brand messaging, where they're donating to, what are their causes, are they sustainable? These are conversations that we have had on our page. And in doing that, we are also collecting market research. We are understanding how our consumers feel in the pandemic. Um, how has that changed the way they shop? I mean, we shifted from brick and mortar slash online to purely online in a matter of days, weeks. So it was very important for us to kind of carry that message, still, and let them know that we understand what they're going through. But we want to hear from them, we want to listen, we want to engage with them. And I think that's been, I think, the best experience we've had in building the Instagram is finding out how these women feel, how it's affected, how they shop, and. Essentially, if there was to ever be a pandemic, hope not ever again. We know the the pattern. We know what would be our go to solution for women at that time.
1: Do you want to run a billion dollar company? Like, do you want to build this to the point where it's a billion? And if it gets to that point, do you still want to be the one at the helm? And I ask this question. <laughs> I ask this question because when people respond to it, it it gives you a little bit of insight into. Not just like the the technical stuff, like what's the exit, but more so like how they even view value or how they view their own okay. success and and if that's a high water marker, if it's not, which one is?
0: I have strong opinions on this.
1: Yes, um, we want to hear them.
0: <laughs> Judith and I, Jesus and I, have spoken about this as well, and my answer is no, I would not. Um, the reason I would not want to be at the helm of a billion dollar business is. In my opinion, running a billion dollar business is akin to running a country in terms of the responsibility that you are having. And what I mean by that is, we're, right now we're in a global crisis in that um, COVID-19 has changed the way we live full stop. But also, in the last few weeks, it has become apparent that the issues surrounding race relations haven't disappeared, you know. They're just as prominent as they ever were, both in the US and in the UK. And with that, you're seeing a lot of people who are calling on these huge multinationals to do something. And I was just thinking, if I was at the helm of these multinational companies, whatever you do is hugely political. So whether you post on Instagram, what are you posting on Instagram? How is it going to be received? Is it is it solving the problem? Which words are you using? You know, whether you post on Instagram, whether you donate, who are you donating to? How much is it acceptable to donate? All of these questions for me sound like the kinds of questions that you would ask if you were the leader of a country. And I have no intention of being that person. So if um, I would hope that eFitter is hugely successful. And if it does get to the point where it looks like it's growing beyond what I personally could manage, I wouldn't have a problem stepping aside and saying, okay, someone who is more qualified and more invested in running this from this point, go ahead and do so. Um, I'm happy to, you know, sit on the board and, you know, still have a stake in the business, but I couldn't see myself running a multi-billion pound
2: business. But don't quote me on it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I think the question is very uh, controversial, purely because I I think we were speaking about this earlier and I, I... I genuinely feel like no one starts a business and says, this is a billion-dollar idea, and it actually goes to become a billion-dollar idea. When, you think, when I think about billion-dollar companies, I think of Amazon and Facebook. And something that Blahie said, actually, when I we was speaking about it, she said, point me to one billionaire that doesn't have an ethical or moral problem.
1: Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button. This podcast is made possible by listeners just like you. So, thank you for subscribing. And now back some to point,
2: the show. You have like a path, and at some point, you, you veered off the path of okay, what is correct for my workers? Well paid. Is my infrastructure harming an environment? Is like, there's a lot to consider. Um, so, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I personally wouldn't, I don't want to ever say no just in case, just in case we still end up running a billion dollar company. I don't want to say no. But it, it's very, um, it will be very hard for me to give a direct answer until I'm actually faced with the, the business being a billion dollar company and deciding, can I actually carry this? Like Blaise said, it's a huge responsibility, huge responsibility. And the questions you have to answer are no, no longer only tied to the business, but tied to people, tied to people's lives. You are affecting countries, you are affected people's lives. Facebook is a perfect example of their data issue and how that is viewed in several governments as wrong and they're trying to silence them. There's so so many issues that now pop up with a billion-dollar company, I guess, billion-dollar problems
0: now arise. Well, morality is not binary. It's not like, a, oh, you've done this thing that's moral or this thing that's immoral. It's on a scale. So mm-hmm. for these people who are worth, you know, billions of dollars, for, for all they know, they're thinking, okay, when I've been faced with making these difficult decisions, I have made the right decision. I've made the right call at this point. But then we're in the outside, so we don't even know what the magnitude of making the other decisions would be. Like we, All we can see is we think that this is right and we think that this is wrong. And I just I'm not sure that I'd want to be in that kind of position where I'd also feel like I have to justify those kinds of decisions to the general public
1: so there you have it um if e-fitter becomes a billion dollar company you two will have the opportunity to be the first sort of moral you know uh i guess upkeepers of of the market so to speak i mean it's a good question because you're right like if you take a billion dollars sort of out of the market what did you do uh did you provide that billion dollars worth of value and if you did you know. Is is that moral calculation the one, like you said, Judith, the one that you started the company with? Who knows? Uh, But I think it's good insight into sort of how you view your responsibility, not just in London, but in the fashion tech industry. So I think that's good uh does it feel like we're coming up sort of on the end i mean it's 51 i promised you all that it would be about 45 minutes so i appreciate the indulgence on the extra minutes the last question actually i'm going to break it up into two just because of sort of this dynamic here uh, right now the first one is about sort of how we can work together more because as you mentioned that there are founders in london but it could be more diverse i would imagine that's true probably across the globe i know it's been the case in new york even here in memphis and charlotte and houston uh i mean there are other founders that we've connected with in london for you all how do you envision sort of staying connected locally because there are some great networks there in london and angel groups etc but also to branch out and connect more with folks across the globe who are going through some similar things just in a different longitude and latitude
2: um, I think sense of community, like you said, you start local in terms of your thinking because you're brought up locally. Um, so we've always obviously seen London as our, our, our roots and where we all begin, you know, um, connecting and working with other people. But there is absolutely no limit to where this business can take us. And we would be very open to um, connecting with people um around the globe, like you said, the founder problem, diversity founder problem is not just a London problem, not just a US problem or a UK problem, but an international problem. And it's something that if it means that we need to connect across the pond and kind of, you know, build that rapport, build that um, sense of community, um, then yeah, I, I don't think we would absolutely not want to do that. I think 100% is something we would love to do.
0: Yeah, I think this is a perfect example of that, which is, you know, you see, you came across ether, you got in touch with us, and now we're having a transatlantic conversation. And I think that's the beauty of what we're building and that it lives online. And because we are online, we just have access to so many different types of people from across the globe. And I think that's something that I'm enjoying exploring, just like meeting, but not physically meeting people. We're in a similar position to you. So you know, we're always open to building those relationships. And I think in answer to your question, like, what can you do? This is a perfect example of that. You know, I can imagine the majority of the people who listen are in America and we have ambitions for e to to be a global business. So it would be just great to kind of get the word out there about what we're trying to build to begin with.
1: Absolutely. And I'm excited to do it. I think it's a great company. We don't just sort of talk to to everybody, even though we're open to to everybody. I I like the fact that your business is... Something that we all sort of know, understand and touch, but very rarely are people going to their closet sort of thinking about waste. And to your point, Judith, maybe you think about it and it just stays in your closet. (laughs) You know, it just stays where it is. So I I love I love the concept. And that's good. Before you all get into sort of how everybody can stay in touch and how you can uh, reach out to people and, and, and sort of what you're willing to do in terms of relationships with people listening to this right now. What's the most valuable thing that eFitter does uh, for its customers now and and potentially sort of after you get the product out there and up and running and, and sort of like active in the market?
2: I think now we, through our Instagram, as I mentioned previously, we kind of have this whole idea of providing value through education in fashion and informing our audience of what is going on. Like, there is a lot behind the scenes of these big, big companies. And so meetings. a lot of people did not know about the landfill situation until we bought it out as one of our touch points. Um, so we we do believe in the educated audience, the educated consumer. Um, and so if you are to follow us on Instagram, that is the value we'll be giving you. Um, pre-product and then obviously post-product, the products out there, you will be solving the sizing problem as mentioned, still keeping you educated and also just recommending better brands that you can shop at because we are, you know, stuff stuffed on our throats, the fast fashion brands, don't really want to name them, but, you know, we all know them. We all sometimes have shopped at their shop there. Um, but it's important to know what shopping there means for the environment, what shopping there means for you, for your pocket as well, what you are feeding into and how you can be better. And I think that's a value we definitely are providing to our audience. Um, and some people have actually come out to us and said, I've never thought about this before, but you're actually changing the way that I shop. And that's it. That's, that's the aim I think of, um, eFitter as a whole. Yeah. I think just to
0: add on what we're trying to do in the future is also making the shopping experience more, much easier and more enjoyable. So you don't have to worry about buying three pairs of jeans or wearing three different sizes just because you don't know which one fits you. So just making life a lot easier and making those more um, personalized
1: recommendations. Solid. This has been a pleasure. I mean, kind of came into this call only knowing what I was able to see online, to have the opportunity to talk to you both and kind of peel back what's behind the scenes. I mean... I see you all as being the next big fashion tech company. So it's nice to see kind of how you're thinking about it now. And we're going to do everything that we can to sort of get your name out in front of people, but also to keep it going. Because six months from now, this episode will still be going on, but we also still need to be working together and pushing it as well. Like digital is cool, but we still got to put in that work. Speaking of work and keeping the conversation going, uh, where should people go if, if they had to go to one place or if they had all day to go to all the places? Where where would they go?
0: So, um, we mentioned Instagram a lot. That's our most active platform. So, we are at E F I T T E R app. So, at eFitter app. Um, same on Twitter at eFitter app. LinkedIn, eFitter. Um, and our website is efitterapp.com. So that will give you information about what we're trying to do and also links to our podcast, The
1: Fits. And if we want to get on that list for when the MVP drops or we want to know, like, kind of like when it's live, uh, just follow the Instagram and follow the story and see. Is there a sign-up? Or, or
2: Yes, yeah. there is a sign-up. It's com slash contact. It should have a sign-up form where you can sign up and be the first to know.
1: That's super cool. Well, we're going to be excited about that launch and maybe in the future might even have an app launch party for Fitter. That, that would be cool. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> we, we, we would love that. Well, it's been a pleasure uh, for both. Uh, I mean, this is the first I think co-founder team we have um, with two black women. Um, uh, And I've brought this up sort of at the end to just kind of put a finer point into that. You know, this was an incredible interview going deep down into it, but Jeez, I mean, how many of these types of conversations are you able to see where you have two co-founders who who kind of put the business ahead of, you know, kind of anything that might come in the way of building a solid team? So I just want to appreciate that. I will send this uh, to you all. You'll see it sort of as it goes uh, live. I think there's, there's some incredible content right here. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say, or anything that you think of that I missed that people need to know before I let you go?
2: Just follow us on Instagram.
1: <laughs> there it is. If you... Love to
2: connect with you guys and hear your shopping woes and everything. And yeah, just just stay in touch.
1: That yeah, sounds absolutely. that
2: sounds good. Thank well, you so much for this. It's, it's so been much. really enjoyable. My this pleasure. is a great
0: interview. <laughs> yeah.
1: I appreciated it as well, and looking forward to in the future and when, because it's not if. But when I'm in London and when you all hopefully are in the States, we'll definitely link up. Absolutely. All right. Y'all take care and have a great rest of your evening.
0: Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye.
1: See (laughs) you. Thanks for joining this week on Diverse Tech Founders with Abraham J. Williamson. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. You can do it right now. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. Thanks again.